Well, I want to welcome you to session seven of The Money Gap, and we've covered a lot of material, and hopefully you've heard things that you can use and apply in your financial affairs, and tonight's message will be no different at all. I'm going to be talking about plugging leaks, and this is such an important part of God's money system. If you don't plug your leaks, you cannot expect God to help you crawl out of the hole you're in. You have to be willing to do your part. And by the way, any time that God asks you to do anything, uh, it's always dinky compared to the overall need because God's going to supply most of it. I mean, when God told Moses to raise his uh, rod out at the Red Sea, what is that? Lift up your hand, stretch out the rod. What does that have to do with the Red Sea? It wasn't much, but God still required it. When Jesus said to people, fill the water pots with water, that wasn't much, but God still required it. So whatever it is that God requires of us in plugging a leak, it's always small. It's never enough to meet the need, but it is required by God. So let's go to the Bible and let's take a look at the principles in Scripture that lead us to this kind of thinking. And here we go. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, all these events happened to them, who? The children of Israel, as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the time when this age is drawing to a close. And so if that was so 2,000 years ago, how much more true is it today? The people of Israel suffered all kinds of things, and we can learn from that. We can learn from their mistakes. We can see where they missed it. And this idea is called reproof. Reproof is pointing to someone's failure, and it's learning from failure. You can learn from failure. It's always best to learn from somebody else's failure than it is to learn from your own failure. But there was a seven-year period in particular I want to turn your attention to, and it was during the time of Gideon. And uh, Gideon's nation, the children of Israel, were oppressed for seven years under the hand of the Midianites. So uh, the Bible says it came to pass, Judges 6, 7 through 10, that when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage. What you're in right now is not what I brought you to. This is not what I intended for you. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you. I gave your or gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear or worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you hadn't obeyed my voice. And so the prophet is telling them, look, this is why you're in trouble. This is why the oppression came. You began to worship all of these demons and all of these gods that, that are worshipped primarily with sex. And that's, how, uh, th- that's why the religion was so popular. It had a sexual allure to it with temple prostitutes and so forth. And so it was a brutal religion because all the babies that were born because of this were most of the time sacrificed. And that's why God hated this stuff. So rescue is of no value until we change the thinking that got us into trouble. And the same thing is true today. 
If God bailed you out of things without a change of thinking in you, you would keep getting right back into it. Uh, There is no such thing as bliss without boundaries. And a lot of people want bliss but no boundaries. And if you're one of those kind of people, get ready. You're going to have a lot of suffering and heartache. God puts boundaries down not because he hates you but because he loves you. And he's trying to keep you out of things that could hurt you, break your heart. Now, before God brought out this great miraculous deliverance, he led his appointed leader Gideon to plug a leak. He had to tear down the pagan altars that were in his village. Now, Judges chapter 6, verse 25. Now, it came to pass the same night. God sent an angel to Gideon during the daytime and told him, the Lord is with you, you mighty men of valor, and convinced Gideon that he was to lead Israel out of oppression. But it came to pass the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old. Now pay attention to that. Tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull, your father's seven-year-old bull, offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. Had God delivered the children of Israel without dealing with this Baal worship. And not everybody in Israel dealt with the Baal worship, but the guy who's going to be the leader had to deal with it. And i got to tell you that you can turn things around in your own life. God will use you. Even when everybody else is blowing it, God will use you. If you turn things around in your life, you will not be held back by all the other people around you. And that's what was going on with Gideon. Gideon got it right. And he went and took this bull that was seven years old. Why this bull? Because the oppression was seven years in length. And so the bull is a representation of the seven years of trouble. And that's the reason God picked that bull. Take that bull and offer it. The oppression's over. And then tear down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole, which was the female goddess that they worshipped in that time. Uh, That was also cut down. In fact, they used the wood to help stimulate the sacrifice. And so it was all set on fire. And, of course, the people of the village reacted violently and all this stuff. But Gideon's dad took up for him. And nobody dared to defy him because he was bold. So plugging the leaks is the first thing you have to do to get blessing. More money is not always the solution. And I've had plenty of leaks in my life. And, And by the way, Where you have lack, you have a leak. If you have lack, it's because you have a leak. And when you start plugging leaks, God will address your lack. God won't do what he can do until you're willing to do your small part. You don't do that, you're not going to get help. Now, look at what Gideon did. He tears down this altar of Baal. He offers the bull. He tears down the Asherah pole, sets this thing on fire, offers it up to God for a sacrifice. But the Midianites are still a problem. And so very often, when you plug a leak, the problem is still there. Just because you plug a leak doesn't mean all your financial problems are going to go away overnight. But plugging the leak is the first thing you have to do. And if you're not willing to do that, you can't expect God to do his part. It is the first step. You know, I started my own ministry in September of 1980. I rented a little house down on 15th Street in Tulsa and uh, started with two or three employees 
And right then and there, I started with a philosophy that was wrong. And here's what it was. I felt like that people did not believe in children's ministry like they should, and I was entitled to a little bit of slow payment on my bills because, after all, I was in a ministry that people didn't appreciate. So this went on till 1993, and in the summer of 1993, it came to a climax. I had lived under the gun financially with Willie George Ministries, For all of those years, 13 years, we were never fully current in our bills. We were always behind. In fact, it was so bad that pretty much one person in the accounting department was assigned to dealing with our creditors who were calling us constantly, wanting to know where payment was. And they put up with us because we ordered so much stuff. And we did eventually pay everybody. I never cheated anybody. But it was not uncommon for me to be 60 days out, 90 days late on bills. And so in the summer of 93, I realized this has got to end. Either God is who he says he is or he's not. And so I raised the money to pay off the $350,000 worth of bills that I thought, uh, if we get the money to do that, we're okay. We paid those $350,000 in bills, erased it all. I I went to the church, explained what was going on. The church jumped in and helped us greatly. All right? My accounting manager resigned during that period, and, and I wondered what's going on. And, and because now we have, we've reached a milestone here. We've gotten current. Overnight, we're current. And on the way to the airport, he tells the incoming account manager, that there is another $350,000 of bills that he has hidden. Oh, my gosh. He didn't have the heart to tell me about the second three fifty, And I've just come to the church, and we've celebrated a great victory. And we've had all of this uh, sacrificial giving, and everybody's excited because we reached a milestone. And now I find out it's all a farce. I was lied to, and this guy thought he was doing me a favor, but he wasn't, and so now I cannot go back to the church, and so this hits me in the guts, and God showed me right then and there, your problem is not a supply problem. Your problem is an overspending problem. I did not want to hear that. That was not something that that was really pleasant. I didn't want to consider the consequences, but I knew I had no choice. And I went through the toughest period of my life up until that time. I made cut after cut after cut after cut. We cut everything. We, I had to go to 21 employees and politely tell them I was going to have to lay them off. I was as generous as I could be under the circumstances with all of them, but I had to let them go. I had to go to my landlord and ask him to let me out of a portion of my lease. And because I'd been such a good tenant, he agreed. He helped me. We cut this. We cut that. We dropped our teen program called Fire by Night because it really wasn't as profitable as we once thought. Uh, We cut one thing after another. And at the end of about 120 days, we were current in our bills. And we stayed on top of that for the next several years. 
And so what I want you to see is that you have to plug your leaks. If you don't plug your leaks, God can't help you. But because I was willing, God was willing to help us, and that's what he did. Now, I tried to fix the problem with a new supply of income. And, and you know, this is where people get into trouble is because they think, I have a lack of money problem. And really, if you have a lack of income and it's steady and consistent, you may need new income, but your first responsibility is to plug whatever leak you can. And it will almost be something small. Dalev and I made a pledge in 1995 to our building program to build the auditorium that I'm sitting in right now. And we went home and we took a look at everything we did. I cut the paper. I cut the Disney Channel. I cut everything I could possibly cut so that we could start making this building pledge. It wasn't enough. We had garage sales. We sold everything we were not using. I applied that to my pledge. It still was not enough. But it was a start. God saw our hearts and not long after that, the church board met and gave me a raise in pay, which enabled me to make the building fund pledge that we made and we completed. But I had to start with what I could do. And this is where a lot of people are insulted because they take a look at what little they can do and they see how big the need is and they are saying, why try? Because this little bit that I can do is not nearly enough to meet the need. doesn't matter. God still expects you to plug the leak. You plug the leak, you do your part, then watch and see what God can do with his part. God can do amazing things. Now, in this same vein of thinking, it is important that you don't fall into the trap that is common to most Americans, and it is we are slaves to debt and we get into debt, and we get into debt unwisely. Now, I'm not one of those people who believes you should never, ever, ever borrow. Some people teach that. I respect people who have that belief, and for some people, it wouldn't be a bad thing. I learned at an early age how to borrow and be responsible with my bills, and I paid every bill. I never left a debt unpaid. But when you get in over your head and you don't use your borrowing wisely, it creates an unbelievable pressure on you. Debt will always take away a measure of your financial freedom. You want to be free? People, people say, yes, I want to be free. Then recognize debt for what it is. There is always a trade-off with every debt. You may gain a little bit of money, but you're going to lose a little bit of freedom when you take on that debt. Listen to Proverbs 22.7. Just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. You'll have some restrictions put in your life because of your debt. So be strategic with your debt. Borrow to gain ground. Now, I'll give you some stories that I think will help you. When I first started traveling... And this is how I began to make my income. I moved from being a, an employee of a church into an independent contractor traveling around the churches. I had a four-door Pontiac, and I had a lot of gear, and I couldn't close the trunk. And so when I stayed in hotels overnight on my way to my meetings, I always had to unload the trunk, take the coat hanger that I used to tie it up inside, shut the trunk down, had to reload all that stuff. And, and I, I went to Russellville, Arkansas, and the pastor in Russellville, Arkansas had a van. 
and he showed me how he used this van for his traveling. And he talked to me about how helpful something like that would be for me. I came home, and I borrowed the money to buy a van, and I had it outfitted for traveling. It, it had all the stuff we needed to get the job done for our ministry. And, but it was going to cost me $175 a month. That was the highest payment I'd ever had at that time, the highest car payment I'd ever had. But I made the decision to do it. You know, we kept that van for years. I put over 300,000 miles on that van. What a blessing it was. It enabled me to do meetings I might not have been able to do. And here, here's what I was able to do. I was able to carry products with me in that van. Couldn't have done that in my car. My car wouldn't allow me to carry books and other things to sell, but the van did. And so it paid for itself. So I borrowed strategically. Years later, I borrowed for television equipment, and I found out that my payments were actually less than what I was paying to rent cameras one day a week and rent an edit suite for several days a week after I had all the raw footage that had to be recorded and edited into a show. And so I saw that it was beneficial to borrow. I, I, I borrowed strategically, and so Debt can be a friend if you will use it wisely. Now, don't go borrow for a stereo system or a new dining room suit. Now, I did that, so I'm preaching to the choir here. But I'm telling you that you borrow to gain ground. If you borrow just because you want something and got to have it right now, that you get into a, a habit, and that habit will eventually cost you. It won't lead you to good things. You have to change the way you think. Now, there have been times when I've had to wait for things because we didn't have the money. And I have found that waiting always produces something better. And I didn't think that in the beginning. We, we had a house in Texas that we wanted to buy, $21,000. And uh, our, our income that year was $10,000. So this house was $21,000. We really wanted it. But somebody else beat us to the punch, put a contract on it. But I started praying, and I'm praying for their contract to fall through. And I said, God, you, we're your children. And then during my prayer, the Lord kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, these people may also be my children. What do you think about that? And I thought, oh, I can't pray against them. And so the deal didn't go through. I mean, we, we didn't get the house. The other couple got it. And so I was really, really disappointed. We had our hearts set on that house. But about two weeks passed, and our realtor called and said, I have something I think you're going to like. And we go to this new house, and it's very much the same floor plan as the first house, but instead of being $21,000, it's $14,000. And it was on a quiet back street, which was hugely important because Whit was a runner. If you didn't watch the door, he was out the door and down the street. And we had to constantly keep our doors locked because we, <laughs> we was an adventurer. And he wasn't disobedient, but he just loved to roam. And so we saw the value in that little quiet neighborhood. And so God gave us a, a, a picture there of how he works. If something doesn't work out, don't sweat it. The second thing is usually better. I had the same thing happen with our TV gear. I wanted 
cameras that cost us $180,000 to $200,000. We couldn't get the money for it. I had to wait. We waited six months, but a new camera came out in that six-month period that cost $20,000 apiece. Did the same thing the first three cameras did, only it was newer technology. And so now, for the price of one of the old cameras, I can buy three new version cameras. And I said, God, thank you for blocking the money. Thank you. We bought houses that needed work. Other people would look at them and say, ah, I don't want to buy something like this. But it was a blessing for us because the whole time we lived in it, we fixed it up. And we would fix it up, turn around, and sell it. And so when we had to wait, I found it was always a blessing. And we learned not to let debt become our master. Listen to what the Scripture says, Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. This teaches us then that as long as you pay your bills on time and do what you agree to do, debt is not a sin. It could be a sin, and it could be a horrible weight if you overuse it, if you do it without constraints. And I can think of two ministry friends that I have, and they believe that God told them, don't borrow money. And I can say, God blessed them over the years. They did not borrow money, and they were able to do very well. I borrowed money, and we've been able to do very well. Our debt has never been an issue. Now, I did tell you a story a little bit earlier about my creditors, and that was a little bit of a, of a form of debt. But my, my debt with the bank and my lenders where I agreed to borrow money and pay it back, that was never a heavy load for us. We always were careful to borrow strategically. So don't let debt become a big burden to you. Here is the last thing and maybe the most important. You, especially if you've come from a family where poverty and lack was a really big problem, you don't even realize this. You, you won't see it till you crawl out of the hole that you're in. But you will come to realize that your thinking, and very often the thinking of your parents, as much as you love them, we're not putting them down, but their thinking is dominated by a spirit of poverty. And you'd be shocked to see how many people in the body of Christ are trapped by a spirit of poverty. You know, the Bible has so much to say about money. It is loaded with teachings about money. It's loaded with teachings about business principles. God teaches all kinds of positive business ethics in, in Scripture. But, you know, you, you start teaching that in a lot of churches, and immediately you have a lot of people who recoil. Oh, it's a sin to make money. It's a sin to have anything. It's a sin to make a good profit. It's a sin to do that. Well, you know the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, and, and, and that's how people respond. And this is what I've seen. It's okay for us to teach about giving. And, and we have to because the church couldn't exist without giving. And so everybody buys into that. Most people do anyway. Then... We have been blessed in the last 20 years with a new emphasis, managing the money you have. Dave Ramsey and others have done a remarkable job of teaching people how to manage money, and, and that's so helpful. But there's a third element here I do not believe we have properly addressed, and that is the Bible teaches us how to make money. And that has been the theme of this seven-week lesson, how money comes, how money flows. 
But a person who is dominated by the spirit of poverty will fight this in their thinking. They will have an incredibly hard time embracing this idea that God wants you to be blessed financially. There are so many segments of the body of Christ who recoil against this. Hey, wait a minute. I get it. I know that there are some elements of the body of Christ who have overdone it when it comes to the prosperity message. They have put way too much emphasis on prosperity for prosperity's sake. I get that. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because someone goes into a ditch doesn't mean that there's not a truth here. Listen to me. Counterfeit $20 bills exist because there are real $20 bills. Nobody tries to make a counterfeit $21 bill because there are no real $21 bills. And so when someone overblows a teaching and they take it to an extreme and create an inordinate emphasis in that area, it is because there is a real truth there. There is something good to be had if we will only rightly divide the word of truth and find it. And so don't let yourself be deceived by a spirit of poverty. Now here's a verse in Proverbs. It, it's chapter 10 and verse 15. Now I want you to think with me as I read this. It says, the destruction of the poor is their poverty. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. If lack of things, and by the way, Proverbs uses seven different words to describe poverty, and there's seven different forms of poverty in the book of Proverbs. But what I, I want you to get a hold of here is poverty is in itself a destructive force. And it doesn't say the lack of money is the destruction of the poor. It says that poverty itself is the destruction of the poor. There is an attitude and a spirit that keeps people locked in lack for generations. I wrestled with this. My family was in enslaved by a spirit of poverty. You know what's crazy? We fought over money. I watched our family fight over money, and we had no money. Nobody fought over stuff more than our family fought over stuff. It was insane. And I watched other people who had money who were a lot more generous, easygoing about money, they wouldn't get into arguments at the grocery store about the price of this or that. I watched and when we went to fruit stands in the summer how that my aunts would go in and, and get into a fight with the people who were selling watermelons and storm out the door. One place there was a lady who threw her knife down and stuck it in the board because she was so mad at my aunt. They were arguing over the price of a watermelon. And that's what I grew up with. And yet we had nothing. You would think that if we were that cautious about money that we would have saved some and had enough. But people who fight the most about money like that usually don't have that much. Now, you cannot have confidence about money if you do not understand money. 
and the spirit of poverty wants to keep you in ignorance about money. Now, here is the philosophy of people who have a spirit of poverty. And here's what they think. Lucky people have money. Unlucky people don't. Wow. And if we saw somebody had money, our, our thinking is just, they're just lucky. They came in the world. They, did, they just hit a lucky break. And never considered that, that somebody may have worked hard and been wise. You know, when Deleva and I were looking for our first house out there in West Texas, one of the things that we could afford to do was we could drive around in the evenings for just a little bit and look at houses. And we dreamed of what it would be like to get out of an apartment complex and to live in our own home. We dreamed of what it would be like to live in a nice place. Our apartment complex was the worst in town. It was a government housing project. Poverty was everywhere. You you couldn't leave your clothes in the apartment laundry. They'd be stolen. I'm talking about go for five minutes. Somebody sees you walk out, they run in, take all your towels, all your stuff, and, and you're stuck. And we had that happen more than once. And so we lived in this oppressive area. So we would get out in the evenings and drive in nice parts of town. And we'd drive and slow down in front of these nice houses, and you could see library paneling on the wall and a big staircase going upstairs. And we think, oh, what would it be like to have a nice home like that? And this is what happened with me. I said to myself in my heart, those sorry, rich dogs, those sorry people, how many people have they cheated to get the money to buy a house like this, and I resented every one of them. That was during that season that God spoke to me. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. Now, my wife didn't have this problem. I did. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, I can't bless you financially with the attitude that you have. You are judging people that you don't know. And can I tell you, one of the worst places of judgment in our country is in the Bible-believing churches, people who resent those who have money. And the only scriptures they can quote about money is, don't you know it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go in the kingdom of God? Don't you know that money is the root of all evil? And they misquote and misapply Scripture after Scripture and don't rightly divide the Word. They don't look at what Jesus really taught. And this is what the Lord got into my heart. He said, what if that man started out like you started out, and he worked hard, and he built a business, and he made money, and he pays salaries, and he's a blessing to many other families. What if that man is a good man? What if he's a tithe payer? You teach that if you pay your tithes, God will bless you. What if that man got to this point because he was a tithe payer? And here you are cursing him in your heart. I want you to listen to this verse and let it sink into you. It's Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
I could do one of those. If somebody fell on hard times, I could weep with them. I could feel sorry for someone who was hurting. I could go help somebody who was in a jam. But you know what I couldn't do? I could not rejoice with someone who was rejoicing. You know, your test of whether you're dominated by a spirit of poverty is this. Can you rejoice when someone else around you receives a financial blessing when you are experiencing financial lack? If you are resenting what's happening good for somebody else, you have a spirit of poverty. Now, I'm not saying we've got to cast that demon out of you. What I'm saying is you have to reprogram your thinking. One of our greatest presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, said this, Comparison is the thief of joy. And this is where a lot of us get into trouble. We were doing great till we looked around and we saw someone else had a little bit more than us. And then we became resentful. Comparison is the thief of joy. You have to learn to be genuinely happy for other people. That was a lesson that God took me through when I first moved to Tulsa as well. I had to learn to rejoice when other people got promoted because other people got promoted before I did. And I had to realize God is going to be faithful to me as well. You have to beat the spirit of poverty. The poverty-minded person believes that Jesus hated rich people. Now, make no mistake, Jesus did talk straight to rich people, but he didn't hate rich people. Now, look at this one. This is the rich young ruler. A lot of people think that Jesus hated this guy. The man was obsessed with money. Mark 10, 21. I'm going to jump into the middle of the parable, or the story, not a parable, but a story. Then Jesus, looking at him, who? The rich young ruler, loved him. The Bible says Jesus loved the guy. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. Now, a lot of people think that Jesus was saying, I want you to be poor. I want you to be poor like me. Jesus wasn't poor. Jesus didn't have a huge bank account on earth, but he was not poor. He fed 5,000 people. He turned water into wine. He spread all the wine at a wedding when nobody could get wine. Jesus was not resourceless. And he was saying to that rich young ruler, if you will learn how to lay up treasure in heaven, all of your needs will be met. When Jesus says, take up the cross, he isn't saying, go to the cross and stay there. Jesus himself didn't go to the cross and stay there. He went to the cross, but it was temporary, and he came out of it with a glorious resurrection. That's the whole idea of the cross. I will deny myself a thing that I want right now because the only way to get it is I have to borrow to get it or I have to put myself in heavy debt to get it. So I will say no to that. That's a cross. But if I will honor God with that principle, the day will come when I will be able to get that thing. But when I get it then, I get it in a blessed way. That's what we're talking about. That's the principle of the cross. All right, let's keep going. Luke's gospel chapter 8. Jesus had to have money for his ministry. We think that Jesus just wandered around like a, some kind of a sanctified hippie with 12 other sanctified hippies, and everywhere they went, people just came and fed them and gave them handouts, and everything they had came easy and free. That's not what the Bible teaches. Listen to this, Luke 8. Now it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, 
preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. So the 13 of these full-grown men who have to eat and they have families, they've got to pay bills. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So the Bible says Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna were three wealthy women. Now, now, this is kind of funny to me because these wealthy women supported the ministry of Jesus and they are listed in Luke 8, 1, 2, and 3 by name. You know, there were loads of people who must have given to Jesus, but it was these rich supporters that get named. And that doesn't mean that God loves them more than he loves other people. But what it means is God doesn't hate rich people either. And since being a rich person who gives is a hard thing, and Jesus said that most rich people struggle with money, God goes out of his way to thank these rich people because they did overcome this fear of giving money that grips so many people who have a lot of stuff. And so God names them. When Zacchaeus repents and says, I'm giving half my goods to feed the poor, I'm going to restore fourfold anything I've taken from any man, Zacchaeus is celebrated for that, and he's named. Two other men, and there were three of the richest men in Jerusalem alive at Jesus' time. One of them was Nicodemus, the other was Joseph of Arimathea, and the third one is not named. Two of these men were involved in Jesus' ministry. And these two men were responsible for his burial. And they fulfilled the scriptures by taking his body from certain burial and burning in a dump, and they put it in a new tomb. And Nicodemus paid for the spices to, to take care of Jesus' body. All of this was, was hugely important. And so these guys were used of God. So see, God uses rich people. Rich people can do amazing things when they use their resources in the right way. And if you are generous, you don't have to give up everything. You have the one guy that Jesus told. One guy. One guy. He didn't tell Nicodemus to do this. He didn't tell Joseph Arimathea to do it. He didn't even tell uh, Zacchaeus to give up everything he had. He told one guy because this guy was completely dominated by money. Money had such a grip on him that the only way to break its hold was for the man to give up everything that he had and learn how to live by God's good graces, and he couldn't do that. But Jesus loved him anyway. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he gets into the New Testament church, he doesn't tell all the rich people to go broke. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17, 18, 19, "...command those who are rich in this present age..." Not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Now, here's what I love about this. This flows with the scriptures that we started with in the first part of this teaching in Matthew chapter 6, where there were negatives and positives. Jesus says, don't do this, don't do this, but instead do this. Here it is. Don't be haughty, don't trust in uncertain riches. 
but trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. Now, there's a positive, that they be rich in good works. There's another positive, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Storing up for who? For themselves. Storing up for themselves. God, by their generosity, is doing something for them. They are doing something for themselves by being generous. Being generous is for you, and it'll bless your family. And so what I want you to get out of this is that God is not against rich people. He's against money-controlling people. Poor people, I have found this, can be every bit as greedy as those who are rich. They're just not as good at getting money. So those who really trust in God for their financial provision realize they don't have to compromise to get the money that they need. You know, these teachings that I've done over the last several weeks are but a small part of everything the Scripture has to say about money. Some of you may be watching, well, he didn't say anything about this, and he didn't say anything about that. It's because the subject is vast, and time didn't permit us to cover it all. But the ideas that we've given to you can be expressed in one verse, and this is the linchpin of everything we've talked about. It's Matthew 6, 33. But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And Jesus is saying that when you seek the word of the kingdom, and understand the laws of God and the ways of God, your financial issues won't be a problem. I want to pray for you. Father, I pray for those who've heard this word. Bring back to our remembrance all these verses and all these things that we've shared. Let them sink deep down into our hearts that they become a part of our lives and our belief system and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.